Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Here's some money. Go see a Star War. It's election shock therapy. <laughs> I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in this stimulus energized podcast is <laughs> Matt Cookham. So I don't know, Matt, if you're familiar with that quote, but from the uh, I'm criminally underrated arrested development, Lucille Bluth famously <laughs> says, Here's some money, go see a Star War. And <laughs> in the in the wake of uh, Joe Biden sending out the most recent round of of stimulus money and me getting a letter some two months after the stimulus money showed up as a direct deposit in my bank account, a letter yeah. from the from the Biden administration saying, just so you know, there might be some money coming your way. Like, yeah, I know. It's already in my savings account. Um, <laughs> we're- I know. I, I got the same thing. This happened also with the other checks, um, if I recall correctly. Maybe not the first one, but the second one that Trump did, the check came at least six to eight weeks afterwards. But- yep. Um, but yes, that, that's but this, a nice crossover there. So. But this is this is May the fourth, and um, our our friends who are not on this podcast, people like Andy Bramson and Mitch uh, Crum, are big Star Wars fans. Uh, where do you stand on Star Wars? Like, where does it rank in your sort of pop culture milieu? Um, it's pretty high. Of course, not all Star Wars is created equal. Um, yeah, sure. In my humble but accurate opinion, um, you know. It depends on what you're looking for, right? Um, you know, ep- unfortunately, episodes seven through um, seven through nine are just highly unfortunate on about five different levels. Um, very frustrating. Um, cinematically, before we get into this, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Before we get into politics, before we get into the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to give you 30 seconds on the clock as many popular or unpopular opinions about stores that you want, get them off your chest. Then I'll take my 30 seconds and then we'll move on. <laughs> Dr. Kukum, you have 30 seconds on the board. Go. Okay. So, um, so whoever is running, you know, running the story sort of development process, um, you know, higher up, I mean, this is not original me higher up, um, at least for episodes seven through eight, like they don't know how to write a cohesive story um, with, with you know, and then truly develop characters, right? They're trying to do too much all at the same time. Um, they're trying to please the fans. They're trying to bring in new fans. Um, they're trying to go make the space opera so big and sweeping that it just loses all plausibility or meaning, right? And so you don't have time to develop characters because there's too many characters. There's too much going on. Um, it, it, there's so many things that you know plot holes. I mean, there's plot holes, and then there's like you know galactic size plot holes. Um, so there's just you know a lot of problems with that. What I really like um, are sort of the direction that Disney is finally going with sort of the the episodic approach to Star Wars, where you actually have smaller scale stories, good character development, interesting story arcs, um, and and people love it, right? Um, and I think that's why they're doing more of those at this point. Um, I could rant on, but I think I used my allotted 30 seconds and then some okay here's here's mine i'm gonna stick with i'm gonna i'll, I'll keep this quick I'll keep it try and keep this tight 
Um, episodes one and two are absolutely as bad as you remember them. Episode three <laughs> is is sneakily underrated. Go back yes. and rewatch it. Episode six is worse than you remember. Return of the Jedi is not that great. Here's the thing. Episode eight, The, La- the Last Jedi, surprisingly good. Maybe the best modern Star Wars movie, but episode nine is so bad, it actually drags down episode seven along with it. It's wretched. It's the worst Star Wars movie. It's worse than episode one. That's right. At me. Okay. Dang. Um, Rogue One is awesome. And Han so- and Solo is actually better than you think it is. Go back and check that out, too. And if you really like Star Wars, the animation is actually where the plot's at. Go check it out. Oh, 30 seconds. How'd I do? Okay. Yeah. All right. Very good. I like okay. it. Um, <laughs> just FYI. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as transition goes, um, Joe Biden um, apparently is in full support of the U.S. Space Force. So, you know. Oh, there we go. We're about to talk about Biden's first 100 days and we'll be talking about, you know, Star War and all that. Um, yeah. Just thought we'd get that out there. So let's let's go into that. So within this is this is in the news. This is a. Uh, a storytelling motif that showed up in the in the news this week. We've just passed Biden's first hundred days. It was uh, was it Wednesday of last week? Yeah, thereabouts. Somewhere, somewhere around that. We just passed the first hundred days, and this is always well in my lifetime. This has always been a thing that the president talks about is what they're going to accomplish in their first hundred days. And even if they don't say that they're evaluated on this. And so Joe Biden set goals for the number of vaccinations he wanted to get done in his first hundred days. He talked about making getting relief, for the American people in the first hundred days and other kinds of objectives he was going to meet. Matt, where does this come from and why do we focus on the first hundred days? Well, as human beings, we like to be able to, put down markers and to explain things and be able to create yep. narratives. Right. Um, and, and this is sort of an, a collectively sort of informally agreed upon um, sort of marker and a way to sort of create a narrative, right. Um, which has, has some benefits. Um, you know, it gives the media something to write about um, for a week, which is great for them. Um, and it gives presidents um, a way of sort of evaluating themselves and setting expectations. Question is, do the first 100 days matter? Um, not really. Um, it was funny, sort of off the air, we, when we were talking about whether or not to have, you know, what we're going to podcast on this week. Um, we were talking about, you know, do we really want to go along with the whole trope of talking about the first 100 days? Do we really want to succumb to that? And we said, like, well, everyone else is doing it. So I think that's that's an element of it as well. But I think we need to say from, say from the outset that 100 days really doesn't matter that much. And he, there's a couple ways in which it does, um, as I see it, as a political scientist. So first... Um, 100 days is important to the extent that 100, the first 100 days is important for shaping the president's legislative agenda. Mm-hmm. The president has the most political capital during the first 100 days, and it needs to focus in on, on key pieces of legislation that the president wants passed. Some presidents are good at focusing on just one or two big pieces of legislation that are a top priority. Reagan was good at this, for example. The Reagan administration looked back at Carter. The Carter administration realized the Carter administration was not good at this. The Carter administration sent up a boatload of legislation up to Congress and was very unfocused. And Congress said, what are we going to do with all this legislation? And a lot of it didn't get passed. A lot of it got shot down. Um, and so Carter was not a very successful legislator. Um, but, but Ronald Reagan and his team, they, they learned from that mistake and said, we have to focus on a few big pieces of legislation. They did. Um, 
And so that's something that presidents try to do, right? And so the extent that presidents are able to successfully push their legislation in the first 100 days, that 100 days is important. The legislation is important because ultimately um, that's where the president is going to have a lasting impact upon the American political system and upon public policy. President's legacy, a president's long-term impact on public policy comes primarily through, at least in domestic policy, primarily comes through the legislative process. Despite the fact that presidents have enormous executive power, really a lot of the long-term implications hinge on legislation. Um, so that's the most important reason. The other important reason is um, the first 100 days and the success there can be, have an impact upon um, how it sets up um, the buildup to the midterm elections, um, okay. which every president faces as well. So on the whole, you know, presidents, in the end, pre very few presidents are really judged on what they did during the first 100 days, right? That's as, an not what as an exclusive category. Right, exactly. Um, and, that, and that includes the judgment that comes during the midterm elections, not just when they are up for re-election, right? So it's a useful benchmark for seeing how quickly they can get the swing of things and get a handle on, on the job. Um, but of course, remember, they're getting the swing of things and getting a handle on the job in what is most likely to be the um, the most favorable set of conditions that they'll face their entire presidency because they have usually presidents start out with a relatively high level public support and it only drops over the course of their presidency. Right. Um, so this is the most favorable set of conditions. And so if you can if you can't do well during your first 100 days you might not do that well later on, right? So Carter kind of bungled things from early on and didn't do quite as well and never really fully recovered. Um, Clinton was an exception, right? So Clinton did kind of bungle his first 100 days. He mm -hmm. was unfocused, but he learned from his mistakes, was able to pivot more effectively later, right? So some presidents are good at learning from mistakes, some aren't. Um, but 100 days is when it's easiest. It only gets harder after that. We should note though, there are several factors that can really influence um, how a president can spend those first hundred days. There's some reasons why Clinton was pretty feckless during those first hundred. Um, he had never yep. been in Washington before. He was a governor of Arkansas. Uh, a lot of his closest advisors were also not Washington insiders, or they were relatively new to their positions at least. In contrast, uh, George W. Bush, who had been uh, governor of Texas, really had a pretty dense infrastructure of Republicans that dated back not only to his father, George H.W. Bush, but also Ronald Reagan, too. And so with Cheney and Rumsfeld and uh, Wolfowitz and others, he came with this pre-built like set of people who had already been through the process and could really kickstart his presidency. Um, Likewise, Barack Obama, um, a lot of sort of veterans of the Clinton administration, including Hillary Clinton, were able to sort of get the administration off to a quicker start. In contrast, the Trump administration really squandered their first hundred days um, and spent a lot of it really with internecine political fighting and the difficulty of getting certain positions confirmed. Right. So um, we do see really different outcomes of this of this process. But to your point, to legislative point, I had to go back and look up. So I checked uh, the very first president to use the phrase 100 days. Do you know this? I, 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 I was it. surprised. It was FDR. Um, uh, and it was uh, it was a promise that FDR made um, of what he would accomplish in his first 100 days. And he actually did accomplish it. Now, to be fair, FDR had in his first presidency an absolutely massive Democratic majority in Congress. Uh, but he was able to pass 76 pieces of legislation in his first hundred days. Uh, many of these were uh, debt or depression relief programs um, and really the, the, the start of um, the New Deal. 
And in many ways, what Carter was trying to do was something similar. Let's throw a bunch of things at Congress and try and get a bunch of programs passed. But what Carter didn't have that FDR had was incredible public will, a real sense of crisis, which motivated Congress, and an enormous Democratic majority in, 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 uh, in both houses. And so it's not surprising mm -hmm. to me that that strategy didn't work for Carter. It where's, is interesting. Where's, where's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I was going to say it's interesting. So um, there's a, a political scientist by the name slash historian by the name of Fred Greenstein, um, and he wrote this great book on presidential leadership styles. Um, and he said, and he says you can evaluate presidential leadership along a number of different um, characteristics, right? Assets, strengths that that presidents have, right? So you can look at their cognitive capacity, their emotional intelligence, their organizational ability, um, their ability to persuade and to speak publicly, um, their their um, the vision that they have, and it's interesting in that both Carter, um, I mean Carter had a sort of a vision of sort of morally sort of cleaning up Washington. That's what he ran on in his campaign. But beyond that, he didn't really have a super coherent policy vision. He was very pragmatic. He was actually really smart at getting down into the weeds on policy, right? And so that meant he was focused more on sort of working out the actual. I mean, he was pretty good at crafting policy, but he didn't have an overarching policy vision, vision for what he wanted to do beyond just cleaning up Washington. And so that meant he didn't have a vision that he could sell and that he could use to basically prioritize what he was going to send to Congress. FDR also really didn't have much of a vision either, right? Other than, you know, help the United States get through the Great Depression um, and bring the United States out. But he was, you know, actually not all that ideological. He was very pragmatic. His approach mm -hmm. was throw a million things up against the wall, see what sticks, see what works. And that worked for FDR because, as you said, Chris, um, he had a massive majority and people were desperate and they were willing to try anything, right? Yep. And they were willing to get behind him, right? But of course, Carter didn't have that that level of support, that size of majority to work with. Um, and the presidency had evolved considerably by that time. Exactly. Um, and so, so Carter didn't enjoy the luxury of not having a vision and being able to send a million things to Congress and let Congress rubber stamp them. Um, so even though both of them lacked vision, um, you know, that that led to two very different places for for other reasons. So where uh, on that continuum, um, when that, that's not a pure continuum. There's lots of different yeah. options presidents could take in their first hundred days. We, we talked about two so far, the level mm -hmm. of organizational capacity that a presidency begins with right. and the level of sort of ambition that a presidency launches on those two kinds of categories. Where would you place the Biden administration? You said, uh, what was the first thing? There was ambition and then organizational capacity? Yeah, I think so. So we're, we're, let's say like, um, yeah. uh, let's say the, the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, pretty organized. Trump, Clinton, pretty disorganized, yep. but also different levels of sort of amb uh, legislative ambition too. Right. Yeah. That, okay. That, that's good. I like that. Um, so sorry. I'm sort of thinking, thinking out loud here. It's what we do on this podcast sometimes. So, so organizational capacity, I mean, obviously Biden, he's coming in with a lot of people from the Obama administration, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these people have, you know, been around the block um, a number of times, been in Washington. And so they've, you know, run in a fairly effective, you know, tight ship at the White House. Um, their messaging is very tightly orchestrated. I would say that's um, the they, tightest part of the whole of the whole game. It really right is. Yeah. Um, you know, Biden himself actually. I mean, he will speak off the cuff some, but but he's generally sticks to the script. Hasn't gone out and barnstormed or given loads of speeches. 
Um, he is, you know, been relatively quiet, basically staying, staying at home, so to speak, mm -hmm. and doing doing office work. I, you know, I doing, know that I'm I know that I'm breaking my own cardinal rule of trying not to be a pundit here, but I'm I'm listening. <laughs> I'm hearing echoes of my of your friend and mine, Andy Bramson, who's on sabbatical right now. If you're wondering where Andy is, Andy's on sabbatical, and we're making him not be on the podcast so that he can get some rest and some other things done. Well, we're not making him. He I think he chose. Oh yeah, he chose, <laughs> but we wouldn't let, we wouldn't let him if he wanted to be. Um, <laughs> that's that's not true. But um, Andy has often referred to Joe Biden as a as a friendly guy machine um and if you told me that we're gonna get 100 days of the biden presidency and not have a significant uh public gaffe from biden i think we would have been pretty surprised and yet that's kind of where we're at yeah no it's true but even beyond um sort of controlling the gaffe machine or keeping it off keeping it away from microphones i mean there's the overall um just there's not been a lot of leaks, right? Yep, um, so everything's been very, it's, it's been a very tight ship. Um, yep. And you can hear like reporters from the, you know, in the White House press pool and Washington sort of saying the same thing, like, wow. And not just in contrast to Trump, which was on the other end of the spectrum, but just even by sort of normal sort of presidential standards, um, you know, this is, you know, there's a fairly seasoned team coming in. And as of now, they've held it together and, um, and really done a fairly, you know, heard from other people say this too, done a fairly good job of kind of keeping keeping the party sort of together, right? You don't see a lot of Democrats like Sanders or other people wandering around criticizing Biden administration. So so the big tent has not collapsed. It's sort of held together. Um mm -hmm. and and you know there's been there's been things that they had to deal with, but so far they've done a pretty good a pretty good job in organizational capacity. Most of the uh, the Biden nominees have have passed. There's been um a couple of a couple of missteps um, um, near Tandon for um, office management and budget yep. was was a bad choice, um, and they probably should have saw that coming. Um, and there's one or two others that got defeated, um, but generally speaking, most of them have gone through with a fair amount of bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. um, you haven't had, you know, a revolving door of White House advisors, right? That you saw with the the, the Trump administration. You know, Biden still has the same chief of staff, <laughs> right? Um, so there's there's some stability there. Um, we'll we'll see how long that lasts um, and, and how things work. But um, it, any thoughts from you, Chris, before we tackle ambition? <laughs> no, I think I agree with that. I think. Um, you do see a number of new faces in the Biden administration. Biden made a big point of trying to get something approaching gender equity yeah. um, in his administration. But even as he did that, he was basically promoting with, from within. And so um, people who are, you know, for, like Jen Psaki, for example, White House communications director, we are, these are people who've already done communications in the White House under previous administrations. Ron Klain, longtime uh, chief of staff for Biden when he was vice president. Now he's chief of staff for Biden as president, right? So the level of consistency here is extremely high. Um, if there's anything that surprises me in terms of organization, and this probably verges from organization into attitudinal approach, is that there is a disjunction that between how Biden talks about and how the Biden administration talks about bipartisanship and how they execute in terms of trying to legislate. We're in a very, very polarized environment. And we're also in a time where the, where the legislature itself is extremely close. Just a couple of seats in the House and it's a dead tie in the Senate with the vice president breaking ties. And so we're in this weird situation where the, the Biden administration needs to talk about bipartisanship, but they really haven't acted bipartisanly per se. 
Yeah, and that I think actually dovetails into the ambition part, right? Yes, I mean, let's go. So, with, let's go with that now. Yeah, I mean the, I mean the ambition in some sense is breathtaking, right? So I mean, if you were to sort of say, you know, ten years ago, you know, a Democrat is going to come into office, have a very narrow margin of margin in the House, like six seats, right, and then a tie in the Senate that is broken by his vice president, would you say, well, clearly the Democratic president is going to propose $4 trillion of additional spending beyond a, you know, roughly $2 trillion package. Like, right. And it's going to be expansive and it's going to be the, the most sizable, unprecedented increase in the size and scope of the federal government since LBJ's Great Society. And people would be, including the president himself, would be making comparisons between him and FDR. Clearly, that's what's going to happen when he had that. But that's exactly what Biden, Biden administration is doing. And, and so the ambition, given that extremely, the narrowest of margins, right, especially in the Senate, it can't get more narrow. The ambition is absolutely breathtaking. And then if you were to say, you know, in the same situation, and this president had campaigned on being a moderate and being bipartisan, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you would just, your mind be sort of blown. Um that this is the way things are, are going to play out, but that's exactly the way things are playing out. So, so the ambition is is truly breathtaking. Now, there's reasons why I, you know, we can talk about why why Biden is sort of taking this approach. But um, yeah, can we talk about that for a second? Because I, it seems to me, and I'm an IR guy, and I'm not a, I'm, I don't read deeply in American electoral politics, but it seems to me that the Biden administration decided we can't win on competence. We can't, we can't just say, okay, we're not the Trump administration. We're quiet. We're stable. We're competent. We're restoring external alliances. We're keeping the trains running on time. Uh, isn't, isn't this, aren't you, aren't you happy that you don't have to think about who your president is on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Uh, they're saying we, that won't work for us. Um, the country is too polarized. We have to go big on policy. And so we're going to, uh, we're going to take a hard step to the left in terms of not necessarily in terms of social policy, but hard step to the left in terms of government spending and essentially social safety net building. And that's uh, that's going to be a defining feature of the policy, this legislation of our first hundred days. Um, is that a fair read or is there something else that some other way of kind of configuring so this, the, their, their strategy? Yeah. Um I mean, it kind of depends on what you think your your most effective electoral strategy is going to be going forward, right? Um, I mean, I fundamentally think both parties are misreading the American populace, and you know, there's this, <laughs> and both parties are, you know, some people put it, you know, basically acting in a way that's going to make them minority parties because they're sort of they're they're abandoning sort of the center, which is fairly moderate, right? I mean, I think the Democratic Party. Let's just say if Joe Biden said, hey, we're going to pass some, you know, big-ish bills, maybe $2 trillion total, and just be competent and not overreach and not do some of the things that are going to inflame the culture wars, he could sail through the midterms, right? You think but so? I think so. I think, yeah. I mean, his his support is fairly high, and but he's but he's doing things that, um, you know, passing, you know, very large pieces of legislation without much, what without a whole lot of Republican input so far right? and doing things more along the lines of executive orders and such that, you know, are going to um, sort of inflame the culture wars. Right. And if he would just, 
have just regular big spending as opposed to astronomical big spending and not use some of these executive I think he would win. Now, would the Democratic Party call for his head? Probably, right? And so this is where the problem comes in, and both parties deal with this, is you have, you know, a, a sizable faction, you know, on the ideological, you know, extreme that basically is pushing um, the people in the middle to basically, um, you know, further left or further right, you know, further okay. left or right. And one thing, okay, so one thing I said, before we come back to your question, one thing I said back in, I don't know, it was probably a year ago, um, during the primaries, right? And certainly over the summer is that, um, you know, people, so people right now are expressing surprise, like, oh, we thought Joe Biden was was a moderate and he's going to be bipartisan and whatever. Yeah. But I stated that Joe Biden has always been towards the left. He's not an actual ideological moderate. And he's always been squarely within, he always tried to stay right in the middle of where the Democratic Party is. And as the Democratic Party has shifted leftward, he has shifted leftward by a proportionate degree, right? And that's exactly what we're seeing now, right? Mm -hmm. Is he's going leftward, right? You have these big spending programs, but you know he's not doubling down as hard on you know some sorts of policies as as they might like, right? He's not wiped out all student loan debt. He's not, you know, gone you know as as big as he could on certain you know issues that are really important to the left. But he is doing a lot of significant things to push federal policy leftward, right? So he's, yep. he's squarely in the middle, right? In, in the Democratic Party in some ways. Um, so, yeah, so, but, but there is some popular support. I mean, there is some popular support for the spending program. There's some mixed polling on this, but it turns out that when people are asked, especially about particular elements of things that are in the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, the two pieces of legislation that you know, Biden is wanting to push through Congress basically this year before, yep. you know, before fall, like people like elements of these plans, right? Yep. Whether it's, you know, kindergarten or community college or expansion of healthcare, you know, whatever it is, you know, more infrastructure, people like those things, right? Yep. There's less support for the overall packages, depending on how the question wording in these polls is framed. That's why you get differences in the polling on this. But when you drill down and ask people, do you like this thing that's in this bill, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, give me more of that, please. Um, and yep. that's why, you know, Biden feels like he can he can run with this, even if yeah. Republicans basically want to stay out. He's like, okay, you want to stay out? <laughs> you want to stay out and miss out on, um, on doling out the goodies, right? Fine, that's better for us, right? In 2022 and 2024. Yeah, I think, I think, I, I, think I buy that. I actually think that this is a calculated gamble on the part of the of the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress, frankly, to the extent that they're supporting sort of what the Biden legislative agenda, in that they see the following. They the Senate, which is tied right now, is basically kind of a crapshoot when it comes to uh, the 2022 midterms. Um, according to folks like Nate Silver and the and um, the Nate Cohen and the projection modelers, it sets up a little bit favorably for Democrats. But there's also a couple seats they could very easily lose, including like the Raphael Warnock seat in Georgia that they just won. So you could very much end up with a very close Senate, and, and frankly, only you only need to pick up one or lose one in order for uh, to break this balance this this balance of power in the Senate. The House is really going to be affected profoundly by the census. Uh, two thirds of state legislatures are controlled by Republicans, who will control the redrawing of district maps. Uh, and by that alone, uh, Dave Wasserman uh, estimates that uh, Republicans could pick up 12 seats uh, in, this, in the House just by redistricting. 
which if that plays out, or even if it's 10, uh, now Republicans control Congress, even if they don't pick up any seats. And we know that the party that's not in power tends to pick up seats in the, in the midterms. And so I think what Biden is, what the Republicans have decided is, as long as we don't do too much of anything, we have a really good shot of shaking the House. And once we take the House, then this entire legislative agenda grinds to a halt. And what Biden has said is, in that kind of circumstance, I'm not going to get any bipartisanship. So I'm going to. So my version, my definition of bipartisanship is going to be to offer to work with you. And if you say no thanks, then I'm going to go off and do it by myself. That's what bipartisanship means to me. And I will try to get these big spending programs passed. So when you get the voting booth, you think, oh, that Biden and those Democrats, they gave me free community college or they gave me a much more robust uh, daycare system, or they gave me, you know, new roads and bridges or whatever the things are that are, have been sort of, or, or they gave me, you know, sort of um, green energy, uh, whatever, all the things are packed into these spending bills and that they're going to win on that. They're, and the, and I, look, what I don't know as somebody who's international relations guy is can you make a craft, a winning midterm strategy on short-term legislative accomplishments like those kinds of things that are in these spending bills. If, if Biden and just the Democrats get these things rammed through, can they win on that? Can they hold on to power? Yeah, I, I think you're you're exactly right. So a few things. So, um, so the redistricting, um, that will come into effect to some extent in 2022, but there is likely some of that isn't going to be settled for some years. I mean, it was... So, you know, the 2020 10 census had an impact on, you know, some states which, you know, gained or lost seats, which meant that they had to redraw their maps, um, which, you know, in different, st in different states handled this differently. But redrawing the congressional district maps sometimes involves the state legislature, sometimes involves independent commissions. Every state has a slightly different system. But a lot of times these end up in court, right? So you yeah. had cases in which, like Pennsylvania, for example, which re redrew its map, um, which ended up helping Democrats, um, gave them a couple of extra seats. Like, I remember correctly, Pennsylvania, like their map wasn't solidified until like the 2016 election, right? It took mm. like five or six years to nail some of this. So, so all these seats aren't going to come online, so to speak, for Republicans sort of overnight. And, and you know, it, it's going to take a while basically for the maps sort of get re, to be redrawn and to figure out, you know, you know, which incumbents are going to be running and which ones aren't, right? So all that's going to take a while to settle out might have some impact in 2022. I haven't looked at that really closely, but even setting that aside, I mean, there's a pretty good chance, um, you know, and, and you, can, you can read about this. There's a very good chance that Republicans, even if they, let's say, lose a seat or two in the Senate, take back the House, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that probably explains a little bit um, um, why you're seeing some particular sorts of squabbling in the House GOP, because they're they're anticipating being able to sort of take back um, um take back the house. And so even if they get, you know, six, you know, just a few seats in the house, you know, the game's over, right? For for Biden. So there's this pressure on Biden, especially from the leftward part of his party, like this is the best chance Biden's going to get. At least over the next four years. And if you if we want to enact our sweeping, you know, policy agenda, which we think we have a mandate for, I think they're wrong in that. They don't, but we're going to enact a sweeping agenda it has to be now. It's now or never, right? Um, this is not, there's not going to be a better chance. Um, and it's entirely unclear what things will look like for a second term. And I think, as you point out, Chris, um, you know, basically, if he can give these Democrats, especially these 
you know, Democrats who are from sort of more purple districts, right, yep. in purple states, right, who are vulnerable, if he can give them, you know, things that they can go home and campaign on that aren't, you know, controversial moral, you know, moral political issues, but just good old fashioned, like, this is what the government's doing for you to help you, the people out. People love that stuff. We're in a populist mm -hmm. moment right now in both parties. Yep. Um, and and that could actually be the most effective, you know, one of the most effective sort of gifts that Biden could give give these folks in the House. So um, and so it does two things. It allows you to get your agenda, a lot of it passed and gives you potentially a positive thing to campaign on. On the other hand, if Republicans get their act together and say, you know, this is just profligate sort of, you know, spending with just wanton abandon, like um, and sort of take that approach that could hurt. But of course, Republicans gave up most of their credibility on that already. Um, and haven't really got a message about that. So, so for Biden, I think it's a good gamble in some ways. Yeah, it's an expensive gamble, though. Uh, it's extremely um, expensive. Not only uh, for the not only for the budget, but also, I mean, if if it doesn't work, at the end of the day, he has the stimulus, and that's about it as his legislative record, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think. I mean, we'll see. I mean, so the American Jobs Act is supposedly the first one up on the docket and then the American Families Plan. We will see how much I think it'll pass in some form. Okay. Uh, okay. The question is, what form will it take? I think Republicans might be able to extract a few concessions. I mean, Joe Manchin, um, <laughs> you know, the most powerful man in the Senate. You mean, you mean, um, you mean the, the fourth branch of our government, the, Joe Manchin? Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, the high lord of, of you know, in, the in, case, in case people listening to this podcast um, are just are using us as all their political analysis, can you explain why there is such this totemic power surrounding <laughs> the senator from West Virginia? Yes. Um, so, of course, the, you know, Democrats control the House by a few seats. So you can probably Joe Biden can probably count on the House to support his legislation. There could be some trouble there, but that's not a huge deal. Of course, the Senate is tied 50-50. And the tie-breaking vote in the Senate, of course, is Vice President Kamala Harris. So it basically means Biden's going to need to get every single Democrat on board in order to even get to that tie-breaking vote um, that Harris would cast in his favor for his preferred mm -hmm. policies. Which means that there's, you know, a couple of Democrats who basically can say, hey, um, I'm not going to play along unless you give me X, Y, and Z, or unless you do A, B, or C. And Joe Manchin is one of them, right? Joe Manchin has a reputation. You know, he he is from a very red state, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he knows how to, you know, walk that tightrope um, adroitly. It's impressive. Um, and so he knows what he needs to do and how to, and how to negotiate that. And so, you know, Manchin basically is the decisive vote. Biden can't get what he wants without Manchin. Um, and so that means Biden has to basically cater to, to, you know, some of the things that Manchin wants. So Manchin's not going to spring for, um, you know, Manchin is happy to spend money, right? Um, but there's going to be limits on that. And Manchin has also said that he wants there to be at least a, a, an attempt at bipartisanship in yep. passing this legislation. Um, how far he's going to go with that remains to be seen. So what, here's my, my little this is me attempting to be a, an American political scientist. Are you ready? Are you ready? I've heard some pundits say that Joe Manchin is just really a Republican with a with a D next to his name. He's a he's a Dino. He's a Democrat in name only. <laughs> Can I just be honest? There's no evidence to suggest that that's true. 
there's some really there's a really nice data set uh, which compares the voting records of every member of Congress in relation to every other member of Congress. It's called DW Nominate. It's a really cool uh, ongoing data project. And if you look at Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin is much closer to the other Democrats in the Senate and his own party than he is to any Republican in the Senate. So if there is a partisan divide in the Senate, we don't have Joe Manchin on the other side looking back at the Democrats. He's firmly on the Democratic side. Is he one of the most conservative Democrats? On a lot of issues, yes. But on some other issues, he's actually quite liberal, particularly when it comes to spending, which is why I think you're exactly right that there are going to be some ways to carve out legislative victories that Joe Manchin can get on board with. Um, but he is firmly a Democrat. He's not sort of a secret Republican with a D next to his name. Yeah, that's just conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, thinking. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, that Joe Manchin's, you know, happiness to, you know, spend huge sums of money, right? Um, so long as it doesn't hurt West Virginia um, mm -hmm. and isn't, you know, playing to, you know, the furthest left sort of more cultural progressive policies. Like he's on board, right? And, you know, this, I mean, so, you know, his approach, you know, fits Biden's approach. Biden's approach is, you know, huge amounts of, you know, government programs and spending, right? And, and Manchin is happy to get on board with that. I think Manchin's going to extract concessions. Um, he always does, right, for West Virginia. Um, West Virginia benefits enormously by his position in the Senate, interestingly enough. So uh, side note, um, listeners, if any of you um, are aspiring politicians and you want to accomplish things in Washington um, or in your or, you know, even if you go run for, you know, office in your state legislature, sometimes the best way to accomplish things is not to be a flamethrower <laughs> on the extreme end of your party, but to be in the middle of the institution and to be the swing vote, be the person that people have to play ball with so that because they know they need your support if things are going to get done. Right. And you can actually extract more concessions that way for your state, for your district, if you're that sort of politician. So. There, there are um, virtues in being more moderate and being a team player. Uh, there's also um, reasons. Uh, it can also serve your ambitions as well, yep. is what I'm saying. So anyway. Um, all right. So here's here's what I'm wondering at this point. So we've, we've looked at um, why people focus on these these first 100 days, What why we care. It's sort of this artificial construct, but potentially a useful artificial construct. Um, we've looked at sort of how things within the Biden administration have sort of strategically lined up, what some of his advantages are in terms of organization, what some of his potential risks are in terms of ambition. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering about is we're in, I'm sure we would say this no matter when we were podcasting, but I'm thinking in light of the fact that we've come out of this extremely tumultuous Trump presidency, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. The pandemic has has produced incredibly idiosyncratic effects on the American economy. On the one hand, we had massive unemployment. Uh, we still have essentially null wage growth. Um, and yet the stock market's doing kind of great. And the economic rebound looks like it's going to be pretty significant, a V-shaped rebound, not a U-shaped rebound. Um I don't know um, uh, if you're if uh, housing markets around the country are exploding, uh, home values are up, which means people's personal um, financial situations are up because the stimulus American savings rates are higher than they've been in several decades. So there's a lot of good economic data uh, to look at. It looks like the American economy will rebound faster than a lot of European economies, although not as fast as China. 
international relations guy here for a second. Um, but all of those things together, I want to. I guess what I want to ask is, do you still see the fundamentals as being the same? A lot of the things we've talked about as political scientists in this podcast have been, well, the the party out of power tends to gain seats in the midterms. Well, the president has only a limited amount of time to accomplish legislative agenda. Then they have to start worrying about the midterms. Um, you know, these sort of kind of these fundamentals of our knowledge about how our legislative process and our our federal politics works. Do any of these things, whether it's the pandemic or the Trump administration, do these change the fundamentals or are the fundamentals still sound? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many interlocking things here. I mean, so, I mean, so if you were able to control for all other factors, you would say that a president who is facing, you know, who has an economy that's rebounding considerably and a pandemic that's getting under control in the president's first few years would be good and would lead to minimal or perhaps zero losses mm -hmm. in the House and the Senate, right? And then set that president up for um, doing well for re-election in four yeah. years, right? But of course, you know, things aren't that simple, right? right? So those fundamentals are true and I think they're gonna help Biden a lot, but there's a few things to keep in mind. Um, I mean, so some of the success that Biden's had in the pandemic is because, you know, like with vaccinations and whatever, you know, is like, well, all that existed before he came in, right? But he can still claim credit for it, and he is. Um, maybe that's not ethical, but he's smart to do so. Um, and certainly the messaging, you know, from, from the White House has been more consistent on that. You know, the economy doing well, I think, is going to help. Um, but, but, you know, like, just because of polarization, people are living in sort of two different sort of, you know, perceived versions of reality, right? And so, you know, if you are in, you know, the the, the left echo chamber or the right echo chamber, that's going to shape your perceptions of yep. what's happened with the pandemic and how we're recovering, right? And what the state of affairs in, in the economy is, right? So, and also where in the country you live is going to have an impact, mm -hmm. right? So, you, you know, you go... And, and how different people have ex listening to other podcasts, how different people have experienced the pandemic has been very different. Like you go to, you know, states in the heartland or go to southern states like where things didn't shut down, um, where people, you know, have sort of, sh you know, where there's been real losses because, you know, there's been flaunting of masking or whatever, especially in rural areas and, and you know, not caring about, you know, quickly getting you know vaccinated. There's just less fear and frustration over what happened with the pandemic itself and more frustration with the liberal overreaction to the pandemic, right? Yeah. And you go to places like, you know, on the coasts, um, you know, New, New York State, um, you know, elsewhere, liberal strongholds, and there's still a lot of fear and trepidation over over the pandemic itself. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're still in lockdown. Boston, you know, recently just, I believe, reissued their mandate that everyone has to remain masked outdoors. And defiance of the CDC, right? So there's, yeah. you know, so there's very different perceptions and experiences. And, and so that means there is not one overarching set of facts that people can look at when they are doing what's called sort of retrospective voting, looking back, seeing what's happened in the past, and then make casting votes accordingly, right? So in some ways, I think our polarization and our respective ecosystems and our, and our genuinely different experiences of the pandemic are going to swamp these fundamentals 
in a lot of ways um, mm. and make them less relevant. I'm not sure how much, but that's kind of my, my current working hypothesis. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? I think that the little bit that I know about voter behavior suggests that people aren't good at being um, chronologically sophisticated retrospective voters. They're not good at sort of uh, thinking through like a like you like, imagine you kept a diary of all the political events that were important to you for two years, and then you walked in the voting booth and you flipped open your diary and you thumbed through it and decided if you liked the incumbents and so you're going to vote for them again, or if you disliked them and you're going to vote for them out. No, no one really does that. Instead, what what happens is we kind of have this online tally of if we're feeling good about things or if we're feeling bad about things. Um, Yep. And partisanship plays a huge role in that. So if you have even sort of a relatively weak partisan um, affiliation, it takes an enormous amount of good feeling to get someone from the other party over over the threshold for you. And it also takes a very little amount of, of, of good feeling for you to vote for your incumbent if they're of the same party. What, for those true independents, those really true no party affiliations, this sort of online model might be really really accurate though and we might have we, what we might want to look at then is to say not so much did the Biden administration handle the pandemic well but rather am i feeling good about the state of the country over the course of say the last 9 to 12 months and are things headed the right direction and if that's the case, then some of those purple districts, and I'm in one of them, right? Uh, Dean Phillips is probably the one of the more purple um, members of the Minnesota delegation, right? Um, he replaced a, a Republican. He's a Democrat. Um, and that could very easily swing the other direction in, an, in another race. That, you know, he's going to be running on, isn't your life better in 2022 than it was in 2021? And shouldn't we keep on the same uh, same group of politicians that got you here? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so, right. And so, so maybe I should sort of, we should revise uh, the hypothesis. So we would say, you know, the fundamentals, you know, don't matter as much when you're thinking about general elections, right? Aren't going to matter so much for the for the partisans right mm -hmm. um what matters you know what matters you know when it comes to the fundamentals is is these people in the middle right yeah. now there's very few true independents people who truly swing back and forth between the two parties um you know there's what we call closet partisans right mm -hmm. you can ask people in public opinion polling you know like are you democrat republican or independent and increasingly there's some interesting data um you know you know on this increasingly actually 538 had an article about this recently there are more and more people are identifying as independent but if you drill down and pollsters do this right or at least they should do this they ask follow-up questions like well you know who did you vote for you know republican or democrat in the previous presidential election and they'll go back like two or three presidential mm -hmm. elections and then for most most people they they actually do consistently vote for one party or the other even if they identify as 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 independents, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but what's interesting is that these people, you know, even though they tend to, you know, behave in a partisan fashion at the ballot box, they're not nearly as ideological, right? And they certainly aren't these sort of super online types that are always, you know, you know, watching their respective news source and weighing in on social media and always having conversation about politics. Politics is not the main thing for them, right? They they tune in, they vote when they need to, right? Um, and so if for these independents, right, if they feel mm -hmm. that, well, hey, um, Biden administration's done a decent job, 
He's not out there flowing, you know, throwing, you know, verbal grenades. And overall, the U.S. seems to be in better shape. Um, they might be feel comfortable um, sticking with the Biden administration and the Democratic Party. But if the Biden administration overreaches and is perceived as, you know, not working with Republicans or pursuing other sorts of more um, controversial policies, Republicans are going to are going to come back and they're going to run against that. And it looks like what the Republicans are, are shaping up to run on is not try to run against Biden and his sort of economic pop, economic populist agenda, right? Not run against these big pieces of legislation, but sort of run against sort of the far left Democratic wing, sort of the the woke, um, you know, the woke progressives, and yeah. try, try to attach the Biden administration, Democrats in general, to that sort of agenda. And that's it. Looks like that's going to be the the strategy that that Republicans take, and it actually might work depending on you know how successful they they are, but. But um, and, it, and that can have an impact on independence as well. So yep. but we'll see how it all all plays out. Can I throw you a, a little bit of a curveball, Matt? We've got um, you always do that. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, you know, we're, we're at Bethel. We're a couple of uh, Christian political scientists. We're teaching at a predominantly evangelical institution. Um, if, if we can speak with authority on any community population here on, in, the, in the country, it's, it's, it's that sort of uh, evangelical voter of which. 80% or so voted for Trump in both elections. Yep. Uh, they're strongly affiliated with the Republican Party. And yet, as I've been trying to think over the last uh, 100 days or so, I really can't, and maybe this is me needing to be corrected, but I really can't think of a, of a signature issue of the Biden administration that might be highly mobilizing to evangelical voters. Now, I'm not suggesting that Biden's going to win over evangelical voters. I think for most of positive direction, sorry, mobilizing in the negative direction. The negative direction. So, so like, is there something as Republicans gear up to campaign in, in 2022 and they want to point to some kind of, of, of policy choice by the Biden administration that's deeply opposed to evangelical voters' values as a way of sort of uh, instilling anger or fear in evangelicals to get them to go, go out and vote against Democrats. I'm not sure that, that issue has, like, I don't, I haven't, I can't remember the Biden administration taking big specific action on abortion. Well, the Hyde on, Amendment, that's a big thing. Well, that's true. And that's the Hyde up, Amendment. There's that com- the. That comes up every. Every, that comes up every cycle. I mean, it's not novel, I guess. Um, although, sure. yeah, that's that's really mobilizing. Uh, what would be mobilizing is if Stephen Breyer would retire, um, and then you'd get the Biden administration nominating a liberal justice to replace him. But with the six-three majority on the court, I'm not sure is if that's as relevant as it's been in the past. Yeah, um, it's a game changer. I mean, if Biden said, you know, went beyond like, I mean, so he pointed a commission about, you know. On the Supreme Court, in other words, the Supreme Court sort of packing commission, right? Mm-hmm. If you went beyond appointing a commission, right, which is you know a classic thing to do to sort of sort of like put it off and table it, right, not have yep, to do exactly. actually anything, you know, throw. There's, there's, throw there's the no base. way Biden's packing the court. I'll, no, I'll I, yeah, and not not as long as Mansion is in control. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, so I mean, so there's other things like so um, there's some you know rules that have come out that um, you know by the Biden administration basically wants to try to try to enforce um, some of the, you know, double down on some of the 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 rules and the implementation of rules from the Obama administration regarding abortifacients, right? So little sisters yeah. of the poor are back in court now, 
thanks yep. to the Biden administration. So, so you know, I haven't kept super close track, but there's enough things that they've been doing um, that um, and possibly could do. I mean, there are some pretty. I mean, there there are some liberal flamethrowers in the the Biden administration. Javier Becerra, sure. um, you know, former AG of of California, right? Mm -hmm. Um, has a track record. So there's plenty of time for more of that to happen. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of that did. Um, certainly enough to... Oh, and here's the other thing, Chris. Like some of this is irrelevant in what by the Biden administration does, right? Mm. What's important is what... Well, not important, but but what, what happens, I've been telling my class this, you know, is, is you know, both and both parties do this, right? So the, so the, the liberals, you know, say, you know, the, the Democrats say, you know, take Matt Gates, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and say, you know, look, all Republicans are like Matt Gates, don't Republican, right? And so they feature campaign advertisements featuring crazy or Marjorie Gates, Taylor right? Green or Marjorie Taylor Joshua Hawley, Josh Hawley, yep. right? Taking the worst, right, and saying this is this is representative of what the Republican Party stands for. Don't vote for them, right? And of course, you know, the Republicans, conservatives do this as well, right? Um, you know, they do this with AOC, the squad. AOC right? Um, and you know the squad and so on, right? So, so even though you know AOC and the squad actually aren't liked by their fellow members in the House of Representatives, they get covered perpetually, you know, on Fox News, and are featured prominently in Republican uh, campaign advertising, right? And you get the reversed on the other side, right? So in some sense, it doesn't really matter if the Biden administration doesn't throw a huge number of massive culture war bombs out there, right? It doesn't matter because the the message is going to be this is what democrats as a whole stand for right and of course biden is the head of the democratic party and he will inevitably get swept up into that so yeah um so again you know partisan politics overrides these finer distinctions um and as you said chris you know really you know the way public opinion works the way people sort of evaluate the parties is just an overall impression of what the parties stand for right not these fine grade distinctions between you know what these different members of, of the respective parties are doing. So, yeah. And I'll just, I'll say this at the end, and uh, I hope this doesn't come across as too editorial, but there's something that Josh Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Matt Gates, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, Ilhan Omar, and uh, others have in common, besides being flamethrowers, they've invested primarily within their staffs and the structure of their congressional office to be geared for public debate. Yep. That's what they've decided to be good at. And maybe that's a really good choice, right? Because, because good and scare uh, quotes. Yeah. Because Josh Hawley and Marjorie Taylor Greene have just announced they're going to go on like a barnstorming tour together. Um, and to basically like, because they have a very similar demographic crowd that supports both of them. It's a, a much higher rate of belief in QAnon. It's a belief the election was stolen. It's a belief that the pandemic has been largely fraudulent um and at the same time there's a reason why we have a squad right the not only do ilan homar and alexandra ocasio cortez have similar ideological beliefs but they also want to make similar kinds of public discourse statements about their ideological beliefs yep. and i would just compare them or contrast them maybe um to what you described earlier as being the, having the advantage of being at the center of your party institutionally so that you can be a swing voter within your own party. And there's different ways to be ambitious in parties. And these basically these characters we're talking about have chosen ambition via 
via the television screen or via yep. the internet news cycle yep. and rather than ambition via legislation. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. And so different politicians have different sorts of ambitions. Some actually, you know, do want to, you know, bring certain things to their particular state or district, right? Who yep. do want to have an influence over, you know, policymaking and what happens in Washington, D.C. Some um, want to make a name for themselves, right? Um, and, in, you know, enjoy having the megaphone and being famous um, and using that to their electoral advantage, right? Because in certain districts and states, you know, that can be sufficient to get elected, right? Or at least get elected by the primary base, which will lead to you, you know, ultimately getting, you know, getting approved um, in the general election, right? Yep. So absolutely. This, I mean, yeah, you're, you're singing my song, Chris. I, I've been talking about this with my um, students in my upper level course yeah. on Congress and the presidency. This yeah, is I don't be clear. I'm not picking on these people because I, because I don't like them. Um, I want to contrast them because if yep. I'll point to two senators in uh, who are not like this, um, and that would be, I'd say John Cornyn, um, from Texas and Amy Klobuchar here from Minnesota. Both of them are very partisan. They are very far apart from each other in terms of policies. They're not moderates, but they are much more interested in legislation and the business of the Senate than they are in uh, public discourse. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, um, what we need, you know, in our politics, I mean, yes, it'd be nice to see less polarization sort of pure, on purely ideolog you know, ideological polarization, but it'd be nice if we had less, you know, affective polarization where people just want to yell at each other and they hate each other and they fear each other. And that's sort of what we see here, right? The problem isn't merely that there is profound disagreement. It's that people fear each other, fear the other political tribe. And we have politicians that are capitalizing upon that, monetizing it, right? Yep, exactly, um, exactly. And that's a real problem, right? It's, it's, you know, the problem isn't that Amy Klobuchar and John Cornyn are far apart. The problem is that we have other senators that are far apart and they're not interested in actually having real policy discussions. You can put John Cornyn and Amy Klobuchar in a room. They may not agree on a whole lot, but I bet you they could bang out some common ground on some things mm -hmm. and have sure. a civil discussion and actually know a thing or two about the, the policy proposals that they're endorsing, right? Yep. Unlike, you know, some of the other aforementioned um, members of Congress, right? Yep. Um, the problem isn't merely, again, polarization. It's 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 these other things. It's the the attitude um, and it's the priorities of members of Congress and, and why they decide to, to run for Congress and be a member. Yep. Um, man, this has been fun. Uh, yeah. We need to, I need to head out here. Um, and I think you do as well, but uh, thanks for listening to us, everybody. We'll be back in your podcast feed. And I, what do you think, Matt? A couple weeks? Should we, should we do a uh, final? Yeah, we'll be in the Should we, should we do a final exam of episode? <laughs> um, maybe we'll have some of our students on and we'll, we'll test them for stress. Uh, we'll, um, we'll hit up the electrodes and yeah, exactly. See how tense they are. My, my students are so done. Um, yeah. I, I feel sorry for them. Everyone's just shot and ready. For it has over. been so. it has been a COVID year, and even though the spring has been much much better than the fall, um, students are tired. We're tired. Um, yeah. If you have if you have uh, teachers in your life, it's Teacher Appreciation Week. Give your teachers in your life a hug. Uh, it's been a rough year, um, and um, hey. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, this is a nice outlet for us. We hope it's informative and useful for you. Uh, reach out to us. Let us know how you could, um, uh, what questions we could answer for you. You can always get a hold of us. 
at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, we're part of the Channel 3900 Podcast Network, which is a bunch of different uh, professors and other folks uh, doing a lot of different kinds of things, some academics, some not so much. Uh, check out the whole uh, podcast channel. We've got things like Avatar with Academics, a little bit on hiatus right now, getting ready to start season three. We've got um, Bookish at Bethel. We've got Video Store and a lot of other great things, including some special summer programming that I'm pretty excited about. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening to us. Um, and until you hear our voices again in your podcast feed, go Royals. <laughs> <laughs>